The Voice of Value is supported by Heron Todd White. Hi, and welcome to The Voice of Value, an API podcast for property professionals, where we explore insights, issues, and opportunities across the property ecosystem. I'm Ben Dorrington, editor of the Australia and New Zealand Property Journal. This week, we're speaking to Andrew Johnston, the head of retail, valuation, and and advisory services at Colliers. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Ben. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. Thanks for your time today. Absolute pleasure. Now, to start things off, could you tell us a little bit, a little bit about your experience and uh, the extent of your experience in valuing shopping centres? Yeah, so um, I've been doing this for quite a while, um, around about 30 years. So um, I've, at Colliers now, I've been here for roughly six years. Prior to that, I ran the, the Vales business at um, Savills for about 13 years. Um, prior to that, I was at Jails, or Knife Crank, I should say, and then Jails. So I've um, been doing it for quite a while. I wouldn't be still in the Val space, quite frankly, if I was doing anything other than shopping centres or retail, just because, you know, it's pretty dynamic and a pretty interesting space to be in, and it's pretty specialised and quite dynamic. So, yeah, um, been doing it for a fair while. Hopefully, um, I haven't t- made too many mistakes on the way through, but um, yeah, it's a very enjoyable <laughs> specialisation to work in. Excellent. And so maybe you can take us through the key features of a retail valuation and what external factors influence them? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. And as I just alluded to a moment ago, the main reason why I'm still in the retail valuation space is just because it is a very dynamic asset class. And, you know, one as everybody would have seen over the last couple of years, is constantly evolving and changing, you know, through necessity and sometimes, you know, um, yeah, just because it has to, I suppose. But going through, I suppose, the elements or the key features around, you know, what drives the retail asset class, I think, you know, there are probably a dozen approximately elements that are integral in relation to being able to value the space and if I can I suppose use a bit of an analogy you know in relation to how I you know value shopping centers is when I'm going through the process for me it's all about putting together a jigsaw or a jigsaw puzzle and basically the you know the finished puzzle ultimately is the value that is derived but there's all these little pieces that are all in their own way extremely important that you have to piece together to give you a complete picture. And, you know, without sort of, you know, putting them in any sort of order of preference or priority, a few of the, the key ones are things like store location, shop frontage, foot traffic or footfall, the turnover being generated out of a particular store, the gross rent being generated by that tenancy and whether, most importantly, it is sustainable. The arrears or debtors that are coming out of a shopping centre are also, you know, an an extremely integral part of that jigsaw. So when we talk about arrears, it's basically bad debts or, you know, tenancies that are behind on the rental payments. And then 
obviously in relation to turnover, you have what's something that's called an occupancy cost and whether that is sustainable. And for those of the uninitiated that don't know what an occupancy cost is, that occupancy cost is expressed as a percentage and it's a function of the gross rent payable by that tenancy into the turnover being generated by that store. So that's basically a layman's definition of an occupancy cost. But from a retail perspective, so that's you know the jigsaw puzzle analogy that I've just provided, but for shopping centres, it's all about net income, as it is with most asset or all asset classes. If you're not generating income, the thing's not really worth a great deal, um, typically speaking, unless it's a development site or whatever, albeit you know, land value is still an indelible part of value. As I touched upon a moment ago, with retail, it's all about rental sustainability in contrast to, say, office or industrial. It's about, you know, sustainability of rent, which is then, you know, a function of turnover. So if they're paying a rent that is too high and they're not generating sufficient revenue to be able to support that rent, then ultimately that tenancy will go bust. That then is, um, that turnover is indelibly or integrally linked to retail trade. Um, so, you know, same as when we all go to a shopping centre, obviously the better tenancies are located in higher traffic areas and obviously the poorer tenancies are located in areas where that receive less foot traffic and typically the rent that they pay is a function of that foot traffic. Okay. And, and so... You've kind of alluded to this, but how do retail valuations, I guess, compare to valuations of other asset classes? Yeah, um, I suppose we're just, we're just rehashing what I just said, but um, it's it's largely just around turnover. The other really key, one of the other really key differences between, say, retail and most of the other asset classes is around capital expenditure, which is quite an interesting topic to sort of you know, dive into insofar as uh, if you, in contrast to an office building, for instance, uh, commercial office towers every so often, let's say it's every five or seven years, need considerable injections of capital to basically maintain a, a certain level of rent. Whereas typically with retail shopping centres, if you are going to spend considerable licks of money, you want to be able to generate some sort of uh, additional return out of that space. So typically what happens, or albeit some landlords and institutional owners in the past have left it too long, a shopping centre is largely insulated, um, at least for a period of time, uh, to capital expenditure requirements. So you could basically have a shopping centre and maybe not spend too much money on it for five years and hold levels of rent. Whereas if you've got a you know an office building, um, they'll just you know say well you're providing me with inferior space, so I'll go to the office building next door. Which in many instances, as we all know, with shopping centres, people that are shopping don't have that luxury, so they tend to be reasonably sticky in that regard. And something's got to start looking pretty cruddy before they'll drive an extra 20 minutes to go to a, a competitor that's in better um, condition. And I'm interested also in the sort of issues and risks that you look out for when you're performing retail valuations. The best way to describe 
um, you know, how I identify risk when I'm doing a vow is really, you know, trying to identify those issues and risks. But once again, it's it's about trying to, uh, you know, build the jigsaw puzzle because in isolation, you know, one of those key features of retail probably doesn't tell you uh, too much or it may tell you a little bit without giving you the whole picture. Whereas when you put them all together, like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, the picture becomes reasonably clear, particularly if you've got some level of experience. And that's why a really good example of that, uh, you know, you might, um, and I'll use a couple of the, the jigsaw pieces to try and give you a working example. You may have a tenancy that's paying $1,200 a metre um, and they've been there, let's say, for seven or eight years, so they're, they're a long-term trader. Um, and the $1,200 a metre, you know, when you compare it to the average that's being generated throughout the shopping centre and the shops surrounding that tenancy, uh, on face value, they're all at $1,200 a metre, simplistically. And, you know, you'd say, oh, you know, that's sustainable. You know, that looks okay. But then when you go and start having a look at um, the arrears report or the debtors report that you've received from a client and you you realise that they're um, 150 days in arrears, it's quickly, you know, it's quickly sending off alarm bells to me that that, you know, tenant may be in trouble or the rent uh, for that use in particular may be unsustainable. So, um I think the other really important thing, which I haven't touched on upon, touched on up until this point, is that a sustainable rent in a location for, for instance, a bank um, could be quite different or is quite different to uh, a sustainable rent uh, for a fashion retailer or uh, a fashion accessories retailer. So that then, um, something which I haven't touched upon, yet then comes down to how the shopping centre is broken up to various precincts. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, higher footfall areas is where you want, you know, your best tenants, where you're going to generate your highest level of rent versus lower traffic areas, which, are, uh, you know, you're going to be generating less rent, but, you know, therefore, typically, those are the locations for your services service type retailers such as your healthcare, you know, your banks, etc. But uh, another key point that's worth noting as well is that, you know, you, I'm sure many of the people that are listening to this podcast would have heard of things like, you know, convenience based retailers, you know, which is stuff like your fruit and veg supermarkets, obviously. Um, service type retailers, which are, you know, as the name suggests, things like banks, uh, you know, Australia Post, um, you know, healthcare-related uses, etc. And then you've got destination-based retails, um, you know, which, uh, um, yeah, they physically attract uh, patrons to the centre. So you're going to that shop because it, uh, you know, is in a particular, let's say, destination. Another I suppose major risk with retail, which everybody has obviously read about, heard about, is the increase in online retail, and obviously has become increasingly prevalent during COVID. I think all of us uh, over the last two years have 
bought more stuff online than we ever have before. I think the interesting thing is in this country, you know, pre-COVID, we were sitting at around 10 to 11 percent, according to the numbers of, you know, um, trade that was done online. And from what I understand, I haven't seen any data for the last couple of months, but I think during COVID that ticked up to, you know, 15 to 16 percent. Many landlords are advocating that that will go back to pre-COVID levels. I actually don't believe it. I think, uh, you know, many of us that do these sorts of things are habit forming, uh, you know, and very uh, habitual in nature. So once you learn how to do it, I don't think, you know, with certain things that you're going to go back to the past. So the online piece is obviously a massive one for retail shopping centres. But I think for mine, the thing that I find extremely intriguing about all that stuff is necessity is the mother of invention. So retail as an asset class will need to evolve to be able to accommodate the increase in online retail. Andrew, I'm, I'm really interested to hear about sort of what the most interesting retail valuation that you've undertaken or been involved with or maybe, yeah, that I, given your vast experience in the, in the industry. Yeah, so there is a an interest on that. Well, sorry, I think it's interesting. You know, our listeners may think it's boring, but um, many of them or many of you uh, would have heard of Top Ride, you know, Shopping Centre, uh, if you, particularly if you're in Sydney. But it was the subject of uh, administration, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now. Um, anyway, very interesting Val. It was uh, basically being looked after by some receivers, um, as shopping centres or you know many assets in distress uh, are. And basically, there was a syndicate of six banks. Don't need to name them, obviously, but there was a syndicate of six banks that had varying sized mortgages, uh, you know, with the previous owner or the owner at that point in time, and I was appointed, I suppose, to provide strategic advice to the receiver in relation to how, you know, the various uh, uh, banks could try and, you know, I suppose, um, maximise or minimise their loss, I suppose, or get, get paid the optimum amount of money or try and get as much money back. Um, as they could in the, as part of the sale process. So it was a pretty long and drawn out process, but it was interesting at the time because everybody was telling me um, the thing wasn't worth more than $300 million. And that was, uh, you know, the, the agent that was selling it and the agent himself is, you know, pretty famous saying, John, A, you can't get more than 300 million bucks or we're not going to get more than $300 million for this thing. Um, it took 12 months and basically, you know, there were even, you know, acquiring parties out there that were saying it wasn't worth more than $300 million. Most of the banks were also saying it wasn't worth more than $300 million. Bucks. And basically, I ended up putting a, a value on it of 340 mil and it sold for 341. So, um, yeah, it was one of those wow. ones. Yeah. <laughs> The only thing is, though, I, on face value, you might say, you know, it makes me sound like a legend, but the annoying thing was is that, you know, one of the syndicate members actually released the valuation to 
you know, the, the, per, the prospective purchases. So mm. it was a very interesting process to be involved with. It was pretty stressful at various stages throughout the process, but yeah, the, wow. um, the ultimate result was pretty gratifying. Yeah, that just shows you the importance of, you know, the property, you know, the importance of property valuation, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. And I think, I think, um, and I say this with a considerable degree of pride, I suppose, in many respects. I mean, it, it's quite interesting from my perspective, and I, I say this jokingly to many of my friends that are clients, and some of them are pretty seniors. In the Val space, you know, the relevance of our industry you know, typically is uh, not that high, you know, for you know considerable periods. Um, but when you know what hits the fan, everybody wants to know what's going on or what's going to happen. And you know, once again, we become you know very relevant very quickly. It's sort of you know when the market's going ballistic, everybody thinks they know how to value property, and that whether it's office, retail, or industrial doesn't really matter. But you know, when you get an event the likes of COVID or the GFC or the credit crunch of 2009, you know, no one knows what's going to happen. And that's when, you know, the expertise uh, and experience that, you know, um, some of us have in the industry comes to the fore again. And, it, and COVID was a very good example insofar as we were presenting, um, you know, in the first six weeks of COVID, we were presenting to just about every uh, you know, a REIT board in the country in relation to what was going to happen and to the extent where, you know, with a lot of the institute or some of the institutional landlords are actually getting monthly valuations to try and determine or navigate their way through, you know, what was happening with COVID. And obviously it was particularly relevant for shopping centre owners because the, the larger shopping centres in this country in particular, they're all shut. You know, um, the only things that were really open were supermarkets and chemists and you know, important service retailers, the rest of them were shut. So it was an unprecedented uh, time in Australian retailing history and it was actually, albeit pretty stressful, it was very stimulating and a lot of, well, I wouldn't say fun, but it was a very intriguing stage of the, you know, retail in this country. Absolutely. Now, to that final question for today is, you know, looking forward, how might retail valuations change in the future? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, as I touched upon at the beginning of this conversation, and the reason why I still value shopping centres and didn't go client side, for instance, is just because it is a very, very dynamic space and, you know, um, it, it does need to constantly evolve. And if it doesn't evolve, well, those you know, retailers or even landlords that have the, an inability to evolve will ultimately not be there in 20 years. So I think I think probably the, the biggest change, albeit it's a little bit death of a thousand cuts that we are and have seen, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, is just is the gradual evolution, death, um, metamorphosis, I suppose, of, of department stores in this country and overseas. So... Uh, you know, what we will continue to see is, uh, you know, they're not going to be in every shopping centre, or if they are, they'll be in largely reduced areas. And then the challenge will be, all right, how do we recycle that space into meaningful uh, 
a, into a meaningful retail use or a use of any description really. So that evolution is critically important and I think that then leads on to the other major uh, point of inflection or evolutionary change which I think we're all going to see over the next 10 or 20 years is um, mixed use. Obviously for anyone that's been in property for you know, any reasonable length of time would have heard of that terminology. The reality is, is that retail as an asset class needs to uh, you know, basically expedite that uh, land strategy or land use strategy going forward. And I think if there is a positive that's come out of COVID-19 is landlords have had to, I suppose, expedite mixed use strategies around, you know, in particular their regional shopping centres. And that's because the vulnerability of these things has been very much highlighted by store closures and all that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, obviously if you've got a mixed use development as part of your site and you've got a, um, you know, a medical centre or, you know, a retirement village, um, aged care, residential units, all that sort of stuff is just reducing your risk to pure retail. So, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, I think um, the other thing that, you know, I've spoken to quite a number of people about, which I do find quite exciting is, and these will uh, ultimately have long-term impacts on the space. And, you know, this is, you know, Jono's sort of uh, crystal ball gazing is just the increasing advent in use of electric cars. What What is that going to do to, you know, car parking facilities on a, you know, conventional shopping centre. I mean, I think medium to long term, what will happen is that, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think, you know, where I live in my neck of the woods is, you know, Westfield Miranda. I think what will ultimately happen is that they'll have a bank of, I don't know, 200 to 500, you know, electric vehicles. And basically you just, uh, you know, log on and get them to pick you up and drop you off. And, um, or, you know, so you'll no longer be driving to a shopping centre and all of that space that is currently being used as car parking can then be re recycled into something else. So I think that's pretty cool. I mean, who knows, that may not end up happening, but it's, you know, something that's out there. Definitely the amount of car parking that is required uh, within regional shopping centres in particular is going to be substantially reduced over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, and then even just things like, you know, which was going to happen, but obviously has been delayed as a result of COVID. You know, Uber, um, Uber Air, I think, you know, their first test city outside of the States was, I think, well, it was supposed to be uh, Melbourne. I think it was supposed to be this year, but, uh, you know, that identified, you know, um, Uber Air between Melbourne Airport and the CBD. And that was supposed to be, as I said, um, my date may, may be slightly wrong, but I thought it was this year or last year. But the, the next obvious place to um, um, have that Uber Air capability is, you know, shopping centre car parks and roofs and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, those are some of the things that we are going to see with shopping centres over the next, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years that it is ultimately going to, you know, transform retail as we know it. And it, for me, once again, it's just why I'm still in the space because it is quite interesting. I think 
shopping centres will be quite different in the future to what they are now, and there'll be more things to more people, I think, which is a good thing. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Absolute pleasure. That was uh, Andrew Johnston, the Head of Retail, Valuation and, and Advisory Services at Collier's. Thanks for listening to The Voice of Value. Please join us again for future episodes. You can find all of our podcasts on our website, as well as Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. The Voice of Value is supported by Heron Todd White.